some things in life can seem really counterintuitive. Um, you know, there's some things where what seems like the right thing to do, it's actually the opposite is what you should do. Um, you know, some principles are like slow and steady wins the race. You think, no, fast wins the race. But there's times when, no, slow and steady wins the race. Uh, I ran cross country in high school, and I had this one kid on my team, Eric, for one reason, or for one, one for, for no reason one day, just except for to give himself giggles, uh, we were at McLeansboro, Illinois, running a cross country meet on a golf course, really flat, um, and you know, you get up on your mark set, they fire the starter pistol, and he just took off like a rocket. I mean, just sprinting his heart out for this three-mile race. And so, you know, there's probably 60 to 80 guys running this race, and we're all kind of in a pack, and he's just like, Meow, you know, like blazing through everybody, and you can hear the, the mumbling working its way through the crowd, like, holy smokes, that guy's really starting off with a kick. Holy cow, that guy's really going fast. And, you know, he just goes off of there, and everyone's like really shocked, like, wow, I didn't know we had like a professional like level collegiate runner here today. And then, of course, you know, he gets like 200 meters into the race, totally runs out of steam, and then the rest of the race is everybody like passing by him as he's just like giggling at the fact that he just confused this entire crowd of people. Only reason he did it was just to mess with everybody else at the start of the race. Now, in my cross-country career, what my coach always praised me for was the fact that I was a consistent runner, pace-wise. I would start off slow, and I would end just the same speed, you know? <laughs> I wasn't painfully slow, but I would definitely start off slower than, you know, most people try to get a, a jump on the race, and they would all start off trying to get their, you know, out of the pack and find some sort of a line, and I just let everybody pass me, and I was just doing my own thing, and then I would spend the race kind of passing people back as I went along because slow and or fast didn't win the race. In those moments when you're running long distance, it's the pace that really can matter. And so that's one of those ways that life and principles of life can sometimes seem counterintuitive. One of the most interesting things that I came across this week um, was during World War II, the United Kingdom's Royal Air Force, they were losing a lot of planes that they would send out on missions and not a lot of them came back. And they noticed that the ones that did come back tended to have bullet holes in the same places. And so they thought, okay, this is where our planes are getting shot. And so they started putting armor, extra armor, on the places that tended to have bullet holes in them on the planes that came back. But they noticed that after doing that, it didn't enable them to have any more planes coming back. Like they were still losing planes at a good pace. And so what they realized was, wait, if the planes come back with bullet holes in these particular areas, that means that's not a critical area. And so they did what was opposite. They started putting armor on the places that the planes, when they came back, where they didn't have any bullet holes. Because they realized the planes that got shot in these places that aren't having bullet holes, they never come back. We didn't ever see those planes come back. And so they started putting armor on the places they never saw bullet holes. Because they figured that those were the critical places, and the only reason they never saw bullet holes there was because those planes that got shot there never returned. And it's just some of those times when life, you know, you do what seems natural and what seems right, and yet it's just so counterintuitive. And, you know, we've, we're in the second week of this series on greatness, and we're talking about what does it mean to, to have a life that is great or to be great as a human being. And the way to achieve greatness, greatness is actually very counterintuitive. Last week we talked about how most people are led to believe that the way to greatness is by being the best at something, by climbing the ladder of skill or, 
or hierarchy at, at work, you know, whether it's whatever it might be, it's about being the best at sports, at, at certain levels of intellect, at work, at whatever it might be, at a certain hobby. We think if I can just be the best, then I will be great. And the belief is, the common belief is, the natural thing to think is that greatness is about elevating yourself. Elevate my skill level, elevate my position, whatever it might be. If I can do that, then I'll be great. But unfortunately, this does not work. I mean, it might get you temporary greatness the way the world sees it. You might end up at the top of your field. But as far as getting there and and realizing, man, my life makes sense. I've done all the things I need to do. This is a life that matters. There's a lot of people that get to the top. They elevate themselves till they can go no farther up, and they look around and they think, well, this just wasn't really everything I thought it would be. I'm really disappointed that this is all that is here at the top of this kind of mountain top of my profession or my skill level. And so it doesn't make sense to do the opposite of this, but maybe that's exactly what we need to do. And so today I want to talk about the real path to greatness. And I'll go ahead and, and give you a spoiler warning when we talk about greatness, this is what we want. This is what we, we think we want, okay? But where we're actually going to end up is probably not where you want to hear. It's not what you want to think. It's not what you want someone to tell you. But So if you want to go ahead and get your hands on a Bible or pull up your, get your phone and pull up your Bible app or whatever, or the verses will be on the screen here behind us, we're going to be in Mark, Mark chapter 10. Um, now, if you're un- unfamiliar, Mark is one of the four Jesus-focused biographies that we have in our New Testament. They actually start our New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are four different authors' perspective on the life of Jesus. And so this is Mark's take on the life of Jesus. And in Mark chapter 10, just all you need to know is as we pick up the story, Jesus has just spent time with his closest disciples, kind of telling them, hey, we're traveling through Israel, telling people about you know, salvation and stuff, and we are headed to Jerusalem. And Jesus says, when we get to Jerusalem, I am going to be arrested by the religious leaders, I'm going to be brutally beaten, and I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise from the grave. And so he's kind of st- taking a moment to, for the third time, at least we know of in, in Mark's gospel, for the third time, Jesus is sitting them down and saying, when we get to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen. He's explaining to them the greatest thing that he would ever do. In fact, the greatest thing that anyone would ever do in the history of humanity when he gives his life for humanity's sin. And so he's trying to explain to them this very serious moment to prepare them, saying, hey, when we get to Jerusalem, this whole thing is going to look like it's going south. Everything looks like it's going to be going bad. But when we get there, I just want you guys to know what's going to happen. I'm going to die, but it'll be okay because I'm going to rise again. And his disciples totally, totally miss what he's trying to tell them. Because after he's just said, don't worry, I'm going to die, here's what they come back with. Mark chapter 10, we'll start in verse 35. And James and John, these are two of Jesus' disciples, the sons of Zebedee, their dad's name, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Which, I mean, you got to think about this. Jesus, hey guys, I'm, I'm getting ready to be arrested and I'm going to be brutally beaten. It's going to be awful. They're going to hang me on a cross, and I'm going to die. It's going to be a shameful, disgusting, scary thing to watch. Okay, Jesus, hey, enough about you. Can you do me a favor? Like, what a rude, totally, like, miss the point kind of horrible thing to say. That's, I mean, uh, as far as dumb things to say to God, that's the top of the list. And so they say, Jesus, we want you to do for us 
what we want you to do for us, whatever we ask of you. And what a weird way to say it because it's like, hey, Jesus, we're getting ready to ask something that we know is ridiculous. We want you to agree to it before we ask you. Okay, Jesus, I'm going to ask you a favor. We just want you to agree to do it. And so Jesus says to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your glory. Now, one common thought that first century Jewish people had about this Messiah, the Savior of their people, was they, they thought that the Messiah would show up, stroll into Jerusalem, like in kind of a, a game, like this big military coup, get a lot of military power, throw off the Roman Empire, gain Israel's independence, make Israel a strong nation again, and then the Messiah would sit on the throne that, and, and reign as a king of greatness like they had back in the Old Testament days of David and Solomon when Israel was like top dog in that corner of the world. They thought that's what the Messiah was going to do. And so we kind of see that maybe James and John, that's what they thought Jesus was getting ready to do. Even though he's clearly told them multiple times, we go to Jerusalem and it's going to look like it's going real bad. They're still thinking, no, it's not going to go bad. You're going to kind of whoop up on everybody and you're going to be the king, and you're going to be awesome, and you're going to be powerful, and you're going to need some guys to sit on your right hand and on your left. You're going to need some right-hand guys, you know, to, you know, really kind of share your greatness with in that moment. And Jesus, we want to be those two guys. And so they totally miss the point, but they, they are looking at greatness the way that we look at greatness. Jesus, take us to the top with you. You're getting ready to be awesome. We want to be awesome right along with you. But the problem is, though they wanted Jesus to take him to the top, Jesus wasn't going to the top because that's not the way to greatness. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. He's like, you guys are asking to follow me, and you have no clue where I'm going. You think you know, but you do not know. And he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? That's a way of saying, are you able to handle what I'm getting ready to go through? Do, are you sure you want a taste of my life? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, in the original language here, baptism, it wasn't a religious thing. It's just a word that meant immersed, like totally submerged. He's saying, are you guys really ready that you can be thrown into the deep end of what I'm getting ready to go through? Which, again, is being beaten and, and killed for who he is. And they said, oh, we're able. Because they think, you're going to be a king. You're going to be royalty. You guys, and, and so they're thinking, we can go along with that, Jesus. We can be top dogs in your kingdom. That's going to be great. And Jesus is like, you guys are idiots. You've totally missed the point again. And Jesus said to them, the cup I drink, you are going to drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So he says, you guys are going to drink the cup I drink. Because one thing the disciples didn't know at this point was every single one of them would end up being killed for their faith, with the exception of John, who, despite the fact that he was captured, arrested, and tortured numerous times, he was lucky enough to keep surviving so that he would be alive to keep getting tortured. And so John ended up dying of old age, we think, um, but it wasn't for lack of trying on everybody else's part. They really tried to kill him. And so Jesus is saying, life is going to be rough for you. You are going to drink the cup I'm going to drink. You're going to be going through some of the worst possible things. And one of these days, you're going to understand what I'm actually talking about. But they don't at this point. All they, all they can think about is, how do I be great? How do I get to the top? How do I gain power and authority? Right, be, be Jesus' right-hand man. They rightly saw that Jesus was great, but they just didn't understand the way to greatness. And they weren't the only disciples that didn't get it because as we read in verse 41, 
And when the ten, the other guys, the other disciples heard this, they became indignant at James and John. Like, whoa, what a power move, guys. We're sitting right here, and we all want to be great. We all want to be Jesus' right-hand man. And here you guys are making this power move, trying to sneak in here and take all the goodness for yourself. And so they, again, all of them think, all the disciples think the way to greatness is up. They think by, by gaining power and authority and, and kind of maybe they can be close enough to Jesus where they can kind of suck off some of the greatness and, and, and shine off of Jesus. And yet, I mean, they, they, they're right that Jesus is great, but again, glory isn't found. Greatness isn't found by going to the top. And God's idea of greatness is so different than the world's. And yet, that's all we've been taught. Greatness. You elevate yourself. You get to the top floor of your skill level, of your job, of your, of your profession, of your sphere of influence, whatever it is. If, when you get to the top, that's when you know you'll be great. But Jesus wants everybody to know, that, no, 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 it's so different. And Jesus tries to make it painfully clear to his 12 closest people who should have gotten it by now that the way to greatness isn't up. Okay, greatness is not about elevating yourself, even though that's what our world constantly tells us. And Jesus says, called them to him, saying, guys, stop fighting. Come on, just, okay, take a knee. I just think, like, frustrated football coach. The team can't follow the plays. He's tried so hard to, to get them to follow. He's drawn, you know, here, do here. He's tried it all, and yet they don't get it. And so he's like, okay, guys. Okay, halftime pep talk. Take a knee. Okay, what can I say to get these guys on my side? He, says, he calls them and says, okay, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. So he says, okay, you know the people who are, live outside of Israel, those people that every Jewish person thinks they're just a, the worst of the worst, they're all a bunch of heathens? He's like, you know how they live, right? They're kings and they're, they're rulers. Like, they get on top and they use people. They get on top and everybody's there to serve them and give to them, and they get on top and they do whatever they can to just enjoy that authority. He's like, that's what they do. They think greatness is up. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, or be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus tells them, the world operates. You know how the world operates. Greatness is at the top. And when you get to the top, you lord it over, you rule, you kick around the people that are at the bottom. Greatness and power are about scooping up authority so that others can serve you and do things for you. In the world, greatness is about elevating yourself. But then he pivots and says, my kingdom, where I'm going to be from, it's got to be completely the opposite of that. You can't go to the top for greatness. I've been trying to teach you that you're not going to go to the top for greatness. And I'm actually getting ready to show you the actual road to greatness. And you guys are all going to be horrified by it because you haven't been paying attention. Greatness isn't about elevating yourself. True greatness is about elevating others. It's not about elevating your value in the eyes of other people. It's about giving value to other people. It's not about gaining respect. It's about giving respect. It's about instilling dignity into everybody that you come in contact with. It's about giving away all the things that we naturally want to get for ourselves. It's the opposite, complete, polar opposite. One of the reasons Jesus was great is because his entirely earthly existence was for other people. The reason Jesus was God who stepped out of heaven to walk a life as a human was for us. Jesus wasn't like bored in heaven and thought, you know what will shake things up? I'll spend a lifetime 
stubbing my toe and getting the flu and, you know, who knows what else horrible things he had to go through on a daily basis, okay? Talking to 12 frustrating guys who just can't seem to understand what I'm saying. He's like, Let's, I'll do that because I'm bored. No, he came to live a life of perfection for you and for me because we failed. He went to this cross that he's getting ready to go to at this point in the story. The reason he goes to the cross, the reason he gets beaten and he suffers is so because we deserve a punishment for our sin. And he didn't want us to suffer that punishment, so he took it in our place. Everything, absolutely everything Jesus did was for other people, serving others, elevating others. And he plainly tells his guys, if you want to be great, then you need to get out of your own way. You need to put yourself aside. You need to stop worrying about yourself and start seeing how you can serve and bless and give value to the lives of others. Greatness is not a race to the top like we've been taught to believe. Greatness is a race to the bottom. Who can be the biggest servant? Who can be the biggest caregiver of others? And, and here's the thing. Here's why we don't like that. Why I said you wouldn't like where this goes is because when you pursue greatness this way, nobody notices most of the time. And we kind of like being noticed. I do. Don't you love it when somebody calls you up on stage and says, hey, here's a trophy for being so great. Don't you like it? I remember I didn't do this a lot but because um, I didn't make it, I didn't succeed enough at the levels you needed to succeed at. But I've seen, in, I've seen in sports when you win and they pull you up on this three-tiered podium and you're at the top and you lean over and they put a big old gold medal around your neck and stuff like that. You know, it's like, oh, that's pretty nice. I'm up here. I'm on top looking down on the two losers the first loser and the second loser, you know? Like, like that's, I never did that, but, but that kind of stuff feels so good. That's kind of what we want. We want the recognition. We want the praise. We want the good jobs. And when you are the servant above, above all servants, you're going to go unnoticed. You might never have anybody offer you a position of traditional power and authority. You might never have people clamoring for your autograph. You might never have a constant stream of people telling you how great you are. But that kind of greatness, giving your life away for the good of other people, elevating other, other people, that is really the example of true greatness. I can't tell you how many funerals I've been to and that I've done where you have this person who's in the coffin and their life was meek and quiet, but they served. And people came out by the dozens, sometimes by the hundreds, to just say, my life was changed quietly by the person in the casket, the person we're here to honor. Because when we give away our life, that's when we actually gain the most. That's when the purpose of our life is truly found. Because, it, you know, it opens your eyes to the needs around you. So many of us, we spend our whole life looking in the mirror at ourselves, nasal-gaving at what's going on in our life, what we need, and how our lives are going. But when you open yourself up, when you lift your head up out of your own little tiny bubble, and you look at other people, you're going to see so many ways that you can use your life to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and bless people and tell them that they matter and show them that they have dignity and value with the King of Kings. And if you just realize this, if you just internalize and believe this statement, you have no idea how different your daily life will look. Things like marriage. It's no longer about getting the last word in or having your needs met. It's about how can I serve my spouse? How can I meet his or her needs? That, it changes the game. And I'll tell you what, again, it's not easy. Because marriage is, is one of those things where you do start to think about you. It does get hard. And if you got kids and you pile that into it and they're sucking the life out of you every day and they're waking you up at 6 a.m. and a couple times through the middle of the night, you're tired, you want somebody to meet your needs. And to still say, I'm going to put that aside and, and serve somebody. 
it makes all the difference in the world to how you live day in and day out. When, as a parent, when your job is not elevating yourself, you're no longer going to spend your time trying to suck glory off of your kids, making them do, do good and get gold stars and, and finish first in the races and try to, so that you can walk around going, that's my kid. Ta-da-da-da, you know. You don't have to do that anymore. Why? Because it's not about you. You can love them the way they need to be loved. You can encourage them the way to, they, they need to be encouraged. You can lead them the way they need to be led because it's not about you anymore. It makes all the difference in the world to the way you treat them and the way you love them. At work, you go to work and it's finally, it's not about you having certain benefits or getting recognition or having the boss tell you good job on that project you worked really hard for, but that guy stole credit. It's not about that anymore. It's about you showing up to do your job well because you know when you do your job well, it makes other people's lives better. This just changes every aspect of your daily life because that's where true greatness is. It's not about clamoring to be at the top. In fact, one of the greatest evidences that this me, me being at the top, me elevating myself is not the way to true greatness is just look in the story. All the disciples got mad at James and John. When you do that kind of greatness, when everybody's pursuing that kind of greatness, we're all going to fight and get in each other's way. Why? Because there's one spot at the top and we're all trying to get there. We're all playing one giant game of king of the hill with our lives rather than trying to see how we can give our lives away. In fact, one of the greatest ways you can, you know, tell that we're servants is if you can never get anybody to come into the room first. No, after you. Oh, no, after you. Oh, please, please, before me. Oh, no, ladies first. Oh, I could hate. No, after you. Please, let me hold the door. You know, that, we should, that should be kind of who we are. That's a little ridiculous, I understand, but that's kind of the point. I'm not going to be outserved. I want to give my life away for others. And this mentality, again, it changes everything about who we are and how we live. And too many of us have spent a huge chunk of our lives trying to get greatness the wrong way. And some people have actually attained greatness and been frustrated that worldly greatness and been frustrated by the fact that it wasn't all it's cracked up to be. It's because they went to the wrong, wrong way. They went to the top instead of greatness being found at the bottom. Now, let me bring this into how, th how this works out in the church world sometime, you know, when it comes to just being people who serve one another. One of the things about the church that we forget is the church is actually meant to be a group of people. Like, we're, we're, a, we're a family, a body of believers. It's not the building. It's not this calendar slot that you're all here for today. But the, the church is actually the people you're in the room with. And one of the things Jesus meant for us to do is to serve each other in this way, to be, to be the servant to everyone else in this room. And that includes to how we do ministry here. Um, one, let me just pick one ministry area um, that I feel like is always tricky, okay? And that's the kids' ministry. Kids' ministry is so difficult. Somebody, yeah, somebody's an amen right there. You, you, mm, oh, that wasn't even a, like, your body didn't even process that into an amen. It was just a, mm-hmm, like, it just came out. You just know it's hard, okay? Right? It just, kids are hard. That's just kind of the way it is. They take a lot of energy, and we're all tired. That's, you know, that's kind of the reality of life, right? Um, but one of the general rules that has existed in churches for a long time is that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Right? The church ends up looking like a professional football game where you have 11 guys desperately in need of rest being watched by a crowd of people desperately in need of exercise. <laughs> like, that's kind of how the church looks sometimes. Like, we all sit, and, and there's a few people doing the work, and they're working their heart out, and they're serving, and they're, they're doing it all. And that, that wouldn't, they, they serve until they break, but that wouldn't have to be the case. And I say kids' ministry is not because it's so much harder than everything else, but just because... 
of the nature of kids, it's a little bit of a volunteer-intensive thing. In every church that has a kids' ministry, it is a volunteer-intensive thing. Every single Sunday, we need a minimum of 10 people back in the back, loving kids, changing diapers, please sit down, you know, doing all that stuff, raising their voice a little bit because it's wild and it's crazy and it's hot because you've got too many little kids in a small room. We have a minimum of, of 10. More would be nice. We always are looking for more volunteers, right? But, but that's not something that a lot of people think about or aspire to be in the kids' ministry. We kind of think, oh, please don't ask me, please don't ask me. Oh, yeah, kids' ministry, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And they got me. You know, That's kind of how we tend to view it because it's like, I came to church to get away from my kids for an hour. right? But the idea that like one of the goals that we have just kind of among ourselves at, at, for our kids' ministry is that we would have kids come out of there who never remembered when they learned that Jesus loved them. It's just something that was a part of their life. They've been hearing it over and over again since before they even remember. They don't remember a time in their life when they didn't know about God and everything um, about his love for them and his grace towards them. That's one thing we want to instill in them from the youngest age so that they can build their life on a firm foundation of God's love for them. And, And sometimes the way we can benefit that is by lining up to, to serve, to change some diapers, to, you know, to, to tell some kids to fall in line, maybe to teach a few lessons. And I'll just be honest, the problem with that that we, a, lot of ha- a lot of us have is that it's not an ego-boosting job. No, you're going you're gonna to walk out of there with needing to wash your hands if you're in the nursery, and, and no one's going to high-five you for that. One, they're not going to want to high-five you, but no one's going to high-five you and say, good job today. You're killing it, changing all those diapers and playing with those kids. Thank you for loving them, those, those smallest ones, the youngest ones. Nobody's, nobody's doing that. We're not lining up to high-five those people, and so it goes largely unnoticed. But what if we had people lining up to serve and say, man, I know this ministry has a need, and man, these kids, they're, they're such a blessing to us, and God wants us to serve them. Man, let's do that. What if, we had, what if it was backwards and we had too many volunteers to the positions we had available? I wouldn't know what to do with that. Abby wouldn't know what to do with that. And, you know, and especially, just let me say this as a side note, to guys, you know, I think we have one guy serving in all of Connect Kids? Two? No, no, we have like four. Three or four? How many, in, how, many in, how many in the nursery? One? One guy? One guy in the nursery. He's in there right now, isn't he? He might be listening to this message right now <laughs> and going, oh, great. People are going to talk to me after the service about this. But, but he's back there serving. Nobody asks him about it. He doesn't brag about it. But that's what we, we need this. We need more of that. Guys, kids love guys. I, they don't love me. I don't know what the, I think it's the bald head, but... Most of the time, kids, like, they just want a guy to sit down and play with them, roll a ball back and forth, play with them, you know, change a diaper or two. You can do it. It's not impossible. You just got to hold them still while you do it, right? <laughs> but I just want, like, in the church circle, what would it look like? Sorry, I've spent too much time changing diapers in the last few years. I got a complex, <laughs> I think, about it. But, you know, like, I'm just, that's, just think about that. In every area of ministry, what if we just had people lining up to serve, to understand that my life is to be given away for the good of the people around me, for my church family, for my friends, for my spouse, for my kids, for my coworkers. My life is not a race to the top, but a race to the bottom. And as we go forward in this series, the rest of what we're going to talk about is built on this fact that true greatness is about elevating other people, not about elevating yourself. Every instinct, every craving in your heart is going to be about elevating yourself, but we have to tell ourselves that's not who Jesus called me to be. 
That's not what Jesus called me to do with my life. Your life is too small a thing to waste your time on. He gave you a few, a few years here, and no matter how hard you try to elevate yourself, your great-grandkids will not know your name. They might look it up and go, oh, yeah, it's Ebenezer or whatever, you know, whatever your grandpa's name is. But they won't know your name. But if you elevate Christ, you might have grandkids and great-grandkids who still love Jesus, who end up being in heaven with you. Greatness is not found at the top. It is found at the bottom. Who can be the servant and the slave to all? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for this calling that you've given us to love and to serve. It is a difficult thing for us to do on a daily basis. We can kind of muster service every now and then, but to let our hearts be shaped by this calling of just being a person who is giving our lives away each and every day, that is hard to do. There are so many times when we're going to be frustrated and tired and worried about our needs and wanting to do what we want to do and feeling like people are just getting in the way of that. But let us constantly be reminded of your words to, to the disciples to say, uh, the way to greatness is, is to serve. The way to greatness is to give your life away, just as Jesus came to give his life away. Not to serve, or not, yeah, not to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. And as we talk about every single week, when we, when we come back to the cross of Jesus, I pray that it would again be a reminder of, of what greatness looks like. It's a cross, it's an event that we still talk about 2,000 plus years later, because it was so great, the greatest event of all time, and it wasn't Jesus trying to be awesome and, and get praise and authority, in fact, he was humiliated, he was naked on a cross being spat at and laughed at and mocked as his life slowly drained out of his body. The greatest act of service was a model for us. And we can follow in those footsteps of, of your greatness, not for our own name, but for your name, so that people who, who come after us would know you, would love you, and would understand what it means to be great. So let us be a, a people, let us be a church that breaks out of the rhythm of, of trying to climb our way to greatness. And let us be a people who understand that the way to greatness is, is a race to the bottom. It's about serving and giving our lives for others. It's about instilling dignity and value into others and giving ourselves for them, not, not building ourselves up in any way. So thank you for that, that calling. It's hard, it's difficult, and some days we're going to feel like it's impossible. But I pray that we would never lose sight of your calling in our lives to serve as Jesus did. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.